merciful God, who sent your messengers, the prophets, to preach repentance and prepare the way for our salvation. Give us grace to heed their warnings and forsake our sins, that we may greet with joy the coming of Jesus Christ, our Redeemer, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Welcome back. It is in 2 Timothy chapter 4 that we begin today, so if you have your Bibles, if you will open them, this is the last chapter of this epistle, so we are rapidly drawing to the end of this particular study, and we're going to read through the first five verses today. The screen says the first four, um, but I'm going to amend that. We're going to read through the first five verses today if you have your Bibles with you. This, of course, is Paul. He is writing to his young friend Timothy, this young man to whom he is going to pass on his ministry, and he says, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching. But having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions, and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. As for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. If you have ever been to an ordination service, not the institution of a rector or anything like that, but an actual ordination service, when somebody is ordained from the transitional diaconate to the priesthood in our tradition. There comes a part in the service which is known as the charge. Uh, personally, I, I find it to be the most powerful part of the service, aside from the laying on of hands by the bishop. It's a point where there is the preacher, and he's in the pulpit, and the ordinand is normally sitting down there in the front row, feeling very nervous, very anxious, and very, this, this great weight's coming upon him, and so he's feeling very anxious. And there's this point in the service where, as the preacher's up there preaching, he will suddenly turn to the ordinand. Oftentimes you're, you're addressing the whole congregation, but there will come a point where the preacher will turn to the ordinand and he'll say, stand up. And he stands up in the presence of the whole congregation. And at that point, the preacher, who hopefully has been unpacking the gospel message, and the ministry that this person is to have will suddenly give him a charge. And what he does is he basically lays it on him. I mean, he just, he just puts it on him and reminds him of the tremendous responsibility that is his as a minister of the gospel. And it is a great responsibility. Uh, do you know why many colonial churches did not have stained glass window? Well, no, not because of the Catholic Church necessarily. One of the reasons was, after the age of the Enlightenment, was you wanted to see the glory of God's creation. But another reason was because churches were oftentimes surrounded by churchyards, just as we are here at St. Philip's. And you can go over to St. Michael's and you'll see the same thing. And that was a reminder every time the minister climbed into the pulpit and looked out the windows before he addressed the congregation he saw those tombstones, and it was a reminder to him of the task that he had to proclaim a message, 
because he was conscious of the fact that every single one of us at one point or another is going to occupy a plot in a graveyard just like that. And so his message was a message of life and death, quite literally. That's what he was proclaiming to the people, a message of life and death. In the pulpit at St. Helena's, we used to have a, there was a bronze plaque, brass plaque, uh, as you climbed into the pulpit. It was the first thing the clergymen saw when they climbed into the pulpit. You know what the words were? From the gospel, when the Greeks came to Philip, these words, Sir, we would see Jesus. A reminder to the clergymen, every time that they opened his, their mouth, every time they began to preach the gospel, that their job was to make sure that the people would see Jesus. It's a very powerful. I remember the, at my own ordination service, the, the man who was preaching was the rector of my home parish. He'd been a priest for over, well, at that point, over 40 years. He was rapidly approaching retirement. Um, he retired, but then he did supply work for a number of years, but a priest for over 50 years. And Father Martin, it was a somewhat high church parish that I came from, Father Martin was an old, what they call, black shoe Anglo-Catholic. And he was a man's man. He loved to hunt, he loved to fish, he loved to work with his hands. He was a great, great guy. He was tall, he was about six foot two, barrel-chested, and he had, a, he had silver hair and a silver mustache, and the hair was in a crew cut. <laughs> I mean, he looked like a Marine is what he looked like. And I mean, you, you, you just you felt like when he walked down the hall, you really ought to come to attention is what you felt like when <laughs> Father Martin went by. At any rate, he preached, and I will never forget sitting there, and he's unpacking the message of the gospel, and he's unpacking what it means to be a priest. And at one point, he looked at me and he said, Jeffrey, stand up. And I could just feel the shivers run up my spine right then and there. And let me tell you, he laid it on me and reminded me of all the things that a, a clergyman has to do. And I'll never forget one of the things he said. The worst thing that could be said about a clergyman is he was not available. Well, it was a good thing I wasn't married at that time because uh, I probably would have never gotten married at that time if somebody had heard that. But he laid it on me, and I've never forgotten those words. I've never forgotten that charge that was laid upon me at my ordination. Well, what we have here in 2 Timothy chapter 4 is a very similar situation. Every time I read through these words, I imagine an ordination service because basically that's what's happening here. Paul is coming to the close of his ministry. Uh, he's getting ready to depart, to depart this life. We've already acknowledged the fact that he was imprisoned in Rome. He's going to be passing the baton on to somebody else, to this young man, Timothy. And if you could just imagine it, Paul's up there in the pulpit, so to speak. That's what this letter is. This is his last pulpit. And he's addressing this young man. And I could just imagine Paul all of a sudden in the middle of his sermon turning to Timothy and saying, Timothy, stand up. And Timothy stands up. And Paul lays it on him. He says, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching. 
Then there's this wonderful expression, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into mist. But as for you, as for you, Timothy, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. Paul has already reminded Timothy that the greatest piece of equipment in the Christian soldier's armor is the Word of God. Now, he doesn't use those exact words here. That's to be found elsewhere in Ephesians where he says, put on the full armor of God, and he talks about the helmet of salvation and the breastplate of righteousness and the shield of faith with which you can extinguish the flaming arrows of the evil one, and he talks about having your feet fitted with the gospel of peace. But then he says, take up the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. And I pointed out to you last week that that is the only piece of the soldier's armor that is for both defense and offense. The helmet is for defense. The breastplate is for defense. The shield is for defense. Even the feet fitted with the readiness of the gospel of peace is for defense, if nothing else, to run away. But the sword? See, the sword is not only to fend off the blows of the enemy. The sword is that with which we can defeat the enemy. Now, I pointed out to you last week that a sword is only as good as the hand that wields it. <laughs> the Bible, the Word of God, will only be as effective as your knowledge of it, your ability to rightly handle the Word of truth. And that's one of the reasons why we have that great collect, help us to read, mark, learn, and what? Inwardly digest that by patience and comfort of Thy Holy Word we may embrace and ever hold fast the blessed hope of everlasting life, which is ours in Christ Jesus. Well, Paul is saying the same thing to Timothy here. He's giving him this charge about the Word of God. These are very poignant words. We said that this epistle is the last of Paul's epistle. These are the last words of the apostle. But chapter 4 are the last of the last words. And they are very moving indeed. Paul has already told Timothy a number of things about the Word of God. First of all, he's told Timothy that he is to hear the Word of the Lord. We are to listen, to give attention in church to the Word of the Lord as Christian people. Because actually, our vocation is no different than Timothy's. Your vocation as a Christian is to preach the word. Now, that may not necessarily mean that you have to climb into that pulpit over there at St. Philip's. Nevertheless, by your life, by your witness, by your words, you are called upon as a follower of Jesus Christ to preach the word. And you are to preach the word in season and out of season. That is to say, when it's fashionable and people are willing to listen, and when it's unfashionable and people are not willing to listen. That's one of the things that Paul was telling Timothy. Timothy, look at me. I'm, I'm here in chains in Rome. That could happen to you. And if you're in chains, what are you supposed to do? Preach the word. Well, what if you're unfettered? and People are eager to hear the word. Preach the word. But whether it's in season, out of season, fashionable or unfashionable, your job is to preach the word. But in order to preach the word, you have to hear it. You have to give attention to it. 
Listen, of all the parts of the service, and they are all very important, there probably is no part of the service that is more important than the reading of the lessons and the proclamation of the word. There is a reason why those who constructed that pulpit in St. Philip's Church raised it to the height that it is, so that you need an oxygen tank when you go up there on Sunday. Because the word of the Lord, as I pointed out to you last week, is the greatest relic given to us. Now you might say, well, what about the height of the service, which is the Eucharist? Yes, but you see, you can't appreciate the Eucharist. You can't come humbly before the Lord to receive the body of Christ, to receive the cup of salvation, unless what? You have a relationship with Him. And you cannot have a relationship with Him, or perhaps you have a relationship with Him, but that, re that relationship has been damaged by sin. You cannot in any way, what? Be reconciled to God unless you've heard His word. You know, so often, we may say our prayers when we come into church. And don't get me wrong, that's an important thing. There's a reason why we Anglicans, when we come into church, we're not always glad-handing. There's nothing wrong with that, by the way. I want you to be joyous, and I want you to... But one of the reasons why, when you come into your pew, the first thing you do is you kneel down on your prayers, uh, on your kneeler, and you, you, you say your prayers, and you get into communion with the Lord. There's a reason why we do that. But you know, sometimes in our conversation with God, who does all the talking? Be honest. When you're having a conversation with the Lord, who generally does all the talking? I'll be the first one to admit, it's normally me. My wife will tell you that's no surprise, but nevertheless, but let's be honest. When you're in a conversation with the Lord, who do you think ought to do most of the talking? Now, God can speak to us in any number of means. He can speak to us through the words of the liturgy. He can speak to us through the words of the hymns. He can speak to us through fellow believers. Every now and then, by God's grace, he speaks to us through the preacher. That was meant to be funny. <laughs> but God primarily speaks to us how? Through his word. It's his word. And so Paul is very clear to Timothy. What Timothy needs to do is he needs to hear the word. And he's already acknowledged the fact that he has. In 2 Timothy chapter 3, he says, You, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct in life, my aim, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness. So there is a sense in which Timothy has already heard the word, but he's to continue to hear the word. This is a living word. It is not a dead letter. And God continues to speak through us. You know, you can read one passage of Scripture, and depending upon where you are at this point in your life, you can come back to it six months later, and it will say something very different to you. Not contrary in any way to what God has already revealed, but it will speak to you in a more profound and different way than it has before. My goodness, people spend their whole lives studying the works of Shakespeare. I knew a man who was a professor, distinguished professor of history at the University of South Carolina, excuse me, English at the University of South Carolina. He spent his entire life studying the works of the Scottish poet Robert Burns. His entire life. This is the word of the Lord. You could spend all eternity studying this. And so Paul says to Timothy, the first thing you are to do is you are to hear the word. Pay attention to it. These are the words of life. 
Second thing, he is to believe the word. It's very possible for people to hear the word, but not necessarily to believe the word, not necessarily to trust the word, not necessarily to allow that to what? Sink into them. It's not enough to read. It's not enough to mark. It's not enough to learn. You've got to what? Inwardly digest. And so Paul is very clear to Timothy, you need to hear the word, but you need to believe the word. I said to you last week, there are parts of the scriptures that I, I'll be the first one to admit, I do not understand. There are all kinds of questions when God has his great Q&A session in eternity that I've got, that I want answered. And I bet you have your own questions as well. We're all going to want to know, why did God allow suffering in the world? Why did the innocent, the righteous, appear to suffer so greatly? Why do some people suffer more than others? These are questions that we all want answers to. And I'll be the first one to admit that there are parts of the Bible that are not necessarily clear to me. Some of those answers don't seem to be satisfactory to me. But I also recognize that I see through a glass dimly. That I'm a finite creature and God is infinite. And if he were to explain it to me, I'm not sure that in my sinful, finite, fallen nature, I'd be able to understand it anyway. So while God doesn't answer all of our questions, he answers them enough. He answers enough of them that you and I have good reason to believe and to trust him. You know, it's, it's Advent. And I think about Mary. Uh, one of the bidding prayers in the service of lessons and carols is remember the poor and the afflicted. And finally, remember his blessed mother. We remember Mary. She was a remarkable woman. Of all the men ever born of women, there was no one greater than John the Baptist. Of all the women ever born, there was no one greater than Mary. Remarkable woman. She was only a teenager, you know. Probably she was only a teenager when this great weight was laid upon her that she was going to bear the Savior of the world. And that by bearing the Savior of the world, just like a spear would pierce his side, so a sword would pierce her heart. Can you imagine to raise a child and to see them die in such a horrible, ignominious way as Jesus did? It would break anybody. And yet when Mary, probably not understanding fully what it all meant, that was something that would be a, a, a revelation over the course of time, but nevertheless, do you ever think about the fact that when the Lord came, when the angel Gabriel came and announced that she was going to bear the Savior of the world, now, she was Jew, she, she knew what it was for the Jewish people to long to wait for a Messiah, the long-anticipated, long-promised Savior of the world, and now she was going to be the mother of that child. And, by the way, this is going to be a virginal conception, so you're going to have to go home and explain that to Joseph. And to your mother and your father and your family and your friends. And yet, do you remember what Mary said? What was her response? Let it be unto me. And then the great words of the Magnificat at one point is later, wouldn't it be? My soul doth magnify the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he has regarded the lowliness of his Anne Maiden. How many of you, ladies, the angel Gabriel showed up for you one night and just sort of laid it on you like that, how many of you would just be willing to just take it in stride the way Mary appears to do? How was Mary able to do that? I'll tell you how Mary was able to do it. It wasn't because she was greater than anybody else in terms of she was sinless. 
there's nothing in the scripture that teaches that Mary was sinless. Now, there's a Roman Catholic doctrine called the doctrine of the Immaculate Conception that suggests that Mary was born without sin. You need to understand that that is Roman Catholic tradition. It is not biblical doctrine. There's nothing in the scripture that says that Mary was born without sin. The one to whom she would give birth would be her Savior as well as ours. So where did she find the grace? Where did she find the strength to accept the Lord and this awesome responsibility, knowing full well that for a child, 13-year-old young woman, 14-year-old, however old she was, we don't know exactly, but for a young woman to be caught having had an adulterous relationship, because that's what it was. She was already pledged to Joseph. And so the pledge was as good as a promise. And she was already pledged to Joseph. And so to be found pregnant, and then to come in and say, well, it's not Joseph's child, but it's, it's, it's God's. How many of you are going to go for that? The punishment for that in first century Judaism was death. It was stoning, that's right. That's one of the reasons, incidentally, why Joseph desired to put her away quietly, we're told. Divorce her quietly, because he was a kindly man. And he didn't want to subject her to that ridicule and to that kind of punishment. Where did she find the grace with all of that? And she knew it all. It must have been swirling through her mind, through her heart, knowing that the future was not always going to be bright. She was going to bear the Savior, but it had already been clear the Savior was going to have to die. Where did she find the grace to do that? I'll tell you where she found the grace to do it. She knew that she could trust God for the future, whatever the future held, because God had been faithful in the past. And that's how we know we can trust God. He doesn't answer all of our questions, but he answers enough. He doesn't give us the whole end of the story, but he gives us just enough light for the step that we're on. Now, you may want more than that, but I'm here to tell you you're not going to get more than that. You're going to get what you need, not necessarily what you want, and you're going to get just enough light for the step that you're on. If God were to show you the whole thing, there would be no need for faith. See, to walk by faith means to walk by trust. You trust the Lord. And that's what Paul was saying to Timothy. He said, Timothy, hear the word and believe the word. Trust God. But then he says a third thing, obey the word. You know, there are many people that hear the word, some people that believe the word, but they don't necessarily obey the word. <laughs> they live any way they want. And it brings disrepute upon the Christian church, first of all. And second of all, it implies that Christ's death brought about a cheap grace. We're saved by grace, but my friends, it was not a cheap grace. Some people talk about cheap grace. Let me tell you, there's no such thing in the ultimate sense. Christ's death upon the cross cost God everything. And as a consequence of that, we are to obey. I pointed out to you two weeks ago when I preached on Christ the King Sunday that one of the implications of Christ being king is that you and I are expected to give him unquestioned obedience and unquestioned fealty. In the ancient world, kings were not elected. There were no constitutional monarchies like there are in England today. Kings were absolute rulers. When you were summoned to the king, it was a command. It was not a request. You didn't get any invitation that said you are cordially invited. You are commanded to appear. Christ is the king. And Paul makes it very clear 
when he writes to the Philippians, he said, let me tell you, one day every knee is going to bow. One day every tongue is going to confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Every knee. Richard Dawkins, every knee. Bishop Spong, every knee. And every tongue, every tongue is going to confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Now, some of those people will bow willingly because he is their king. Others will bow unwillingly because he is the king. But make no mistake about it, when Christ returns in glory, all the world will recognize him for king. You know, that's one of the important things to remember about the season of Advent. So often in the church, and I even hear clergymen say this, and it's very disturbing. Oftentimes in the church, people will say, well, Advent is a time for us to prepare for Christmas. Actually, if you listen to the lessons, most of the lessons are not about preparing for the Savior's first coming. Now, Advent is a time in which we prepare to commemorate the first visitation when the Lord came in great humility and was born in Bethlehem in a stable. But really what Advent is, Advent is a time for us to prepare for His second coming. Think about the hymns that we sing during Advent. Lo, He comes with clouds descending, once for favored sinners saying, thousand, thousand saints attending, swell the triumph of His train. That's not about a baby born in Bethlehem, is it? Sleepers awake. What's that about? That's about his second coming. Most of the great Advent hymns, even O Come, O Come, Emmanuel, to some degree, is about the Lord's second coming. And if we know he's coming back, and if we know he's going to be the king, and if we know he's going to set everything that is broken and wrong in this world right, then it only stands to reason that we had better start obeying him now. So Paul says to Timothy, hear the word, believe the word, obey the word. He also says, guard the word. Guard the word. Why? Because there's coming a time when people will not put up with sound doctrine. They will surround themselves with teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. Timothy was to guard the gospel. He was to defend the gospel. On one occasion, Paul uses the word philoso. The Greek word means to stand on a watchtower and watch so that there is no attack coming your direction. And if an attack is coming your direction, you can sound the alarm well in advance. We are to defend the word of the Lord. And let me tell you, it is under assault in our culture. It's constantly being eroded and undermined and questioned. It's what I call the slow fade. You ever listen to music and they sort of fade out at the end of the song? It never really comes to a, an abrupt end. It just sort of fades away. Let me tell you, that is what has happened in the church when it comes to the authority of the Scripture. There's been this sort of slow fade, an incremental move away from the belief that the Bible is the Word of God, and we are under its authority. Instead, we have placed ourselves in authority over it. I pointed out to you last week, we've turned it into a bit of a smorgasbord. Well, that little part, I like that. I'll take that part, the justification by grace through faith, because I know I've messed up my life. I'm glad to know I don't have to do anything in order to be saved. But those other bits, those other parts that we don't find to be particularly palatable, well, we'll just leave those behind. We can't do that. 
we have to hear this, believe it, obey it, and it is our job as Christians to defend it. Now, you say, well, how do you defend the Bible? Well, the best way, Paul said, to defend the Bible is to let it out. That's what Charles Haddon Spurgeon once said, the great Baptist preacher in London. He said, no one needs to defend a lion. The best way to defend a lion when he's in a cage is open the gate and let him out. And that's what Paul is saying to Timothy. He's saying, yes, hear the word, believe the word, obey the word, guard the word, but above all, what? Preach the word. You want to see a change in our culture? Are you worried about what's happening in the nation and in the world today? There's only one remedy, folks, and that is for people to come into a relationship with him who is the Prince of Peace, Jesus Christ. And they will not do that unless what? Unless somebody preaches to them. And how will somebody preach to them unless they are what? Sent. That's what Paul was doing to Timothy, saying, I'm charging you. And it's a heavy burden he puts on him. I'm charging you. I'm telling you what to do. By what authority do you do this, Paul? I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who will judge the living and the dead. That's my basis for authority. Now, your job is to preach the word. Now, in light of what I've just said, how many of you understand that's your job now? All right, if you don't understand that, we need to see a show of hands. If you don't understand it, I've got to go back through it again. So how many of you, how many of you got this? That's your job. Preach the word in season and out of season. Now, the next question is how? How are we supposed to do that? How are we supposed to preach the word? Well, I'm going to tell you how to do it. Same way Paul said to Timothy. First is, you preach the word urgently. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead. By his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. We need to preach the word urgently. This is not something that we can do casually. A charge has been laid upon us. Richard Baxter, who was one of the great English reformers, put it so well. I love these words. He said, whatever you do, let the people see that you are in earnest. You cannot break men's hearts by jesting with them or telling them a smooth tale or patching up a gaudy oration. Men will not cast away their dearest pleasures upon a drowsy request of one that seemeth not to mean as he speaks or to care much whether his request is granted. Preach as a dying man or a dying woman to dying men and women. Sir, we would see Jesus. Do you realize the world is dying? Do you realize that people are perishing all around us without a relationship with Jesus Christ? Do you realize that time is short? We all make our plans. We all have our dreams. We don't know what tomorrow is going to bring, do we? All we have is the time we've been given. Somebody said, well, you're inviting all these people over to your house. That's great. That's wonderful. Are you going to, do you know if you're going to be able to do it next year? I don't know. 
First of all, we don't know we'll have the place next year. And second of all, we could even have the place and I don't know that I'll be here next year. So what do you do in the meantime? You make the most of the time that you've been given. You preach the word now. All you have is the time that you've been given. Use the time that you have. Preach the word earnestly. You are preaching, my friends, as dying men and women to dying men and women. And there's no more important message right now than this. Preach it persuasively. Persuasively and with relevance. That's what Paul means when he says, reprove, rebuke, and exhort. Some people need good news. Some people are, are discouraged and they're, they're beaten down and they're fearful and they need a message of hope and encouragement. But other people, they're hardened in their sin. Some people claim to be Christians, but they're living like hell. Those people, what they really need is what? To be reproved, reproved rebuked. And trained. Why? Because their hearts need to be broken. God needs to take that hard heart and turn it into a heart that is acceptable for Him. So He can take up residence in our lives. And so we need to be prepared to preach like that. Persuasively and with relevance. And what that means, I think, to some degree, is not just quoting Bible verses at people. You've got to understand the Scriptures. The Spirit of the Scriptures, the Holy Spirit, needs to come and take up residence in you in such a way that when you speak the truth, you speak the truth in love. You know, there, there are all kinds of people out there. Some speak the truth, but it's not in love. You know what that is. That, that's what you call Phariseeism. <laughs> Shape up or ship out. It's my way or the highway. Or to put it in more theological terms, Turn or burn. <laughs> My experience is that just generally doesn't work a whole lot. But there are those who speak the truth, but they don't speak the truth in love. There are others who are so consumed with the notion of love that they water down the truth. And that's when you get the Sadducees. <laughs> you notice that Jesus made enemies of both of those groups. Jesus always spoke the truth, but always spoke the truth in love. And we are to do it. We are to recognize where people are. When you go into one congregation and they are, um, they've heard the gospel for years, but they're not doing anything with it. They're, they're burying their talents, and the preacher has got a very different task than if he's going into an area where people have never heard the gospel before. It's the same word, and it will apply to all situations. But you need to be aware of who you're dealing with, and you need to be willing to be persuasive, to proclaim it with relevance, which means to some degree you've got to be willing to do some Christian apologetics. It's always interesting to me that Paul, when he went into the synagogue in the book of Acts, reasoned with them from the scriptures. Sometimes I think when we think of preaching, it's got negative connotations, doesn't it? Oftentimes you get into an argument with your spouse, and you'll hear these words, don't preach at me. Sometimes your children will say that to you. Don't preach at me. How many of you have ever heard those words from somebody else? And that's because it's got what? Negative connotations. 
Perhaps a better word is proclaim, teach. Preaching sounds like you're putting a guilt trip on a person. That's not what we're trying to do here. We're trying to proclaim, trying to share, trying to teach. We need to do it patiently. Why? Because we need to recognize that ultimately it is God who converts the sinner. You and I don't do that. My favorite parable is the parable of the sower. And one of the reasons it's my favorite parable is because it's not about the sower. The sower is the one who throws out the seed. That's the message of the preacher. That, that's the job of the Christian is to throw out the seed. But it's interesting to note the parable is really not about the ability of the preacher or even the power of the seed. The purpose of that or the message of that parable is about what? The ground, the fertile nature of the soil. And who's responsible for that? God is responsible for that. God is responsible for where that seed lands. Our job is simply to throw it out, throw it out liberally. Or as Fitz Allison used to say to me, he said, your job is to simply pour out the word like water and trust the Holy Spirit to turn it into wine. That's what we are called to do as Christian people and to do it patiently because you can get so impatient. We live in an age of instant gratification. You know, one of the reasons I hate cell phones is because I feel like I'm on a leash. You know, people will text you and they expect an immediate response. And there are times when you just can't give an immediate response, believe it or not. There are other things that you have to do in life besides just stay on this and text all day long or respond to your emails all day long. Somebody said, you didn't respond to my email. Oh, I'm sorry, um, when did you send it? I sent that 30 minutes ago. Well, it just so happens that I was celebrating Holy Communion, so I'm sorry. Where were you, by the way? But see, we live in this age of instant gratification, and so we want to see what? Instant results. And sometimes when you're sharing the gospel, you don't get instant results. Do you know how long St. Augustine's mother prayed for him before he was converted? 26 years. Where would we be if there was no Augustine? Where would Augustine be if his mother wasn't patient? So we have to keep at it, even when there are no results. I, I love to cut the grass because it's instant gratification. I accomplished something today. And so often in my life as a clergyman, you look back and you say, I don't know that I, did, I got anything accomplished today. I have, what do I have to show for it? But you see, our job is not to be successful. As you've heard me say so many times before, our job is to be faithful. And so we are to patiently do this. And remember that while we may plant and we may water, God is the one who gives the increase. Every good and perfect gift comes down from above, down from the Father of light. So we are to share the gospel patiently, even when people are so vexing. So frustrating. You just keep at it. If you've ever read the story of C.S. Lewis's conversion, if there weren't people that kept at it with him, I'll tell you, if I'd have been one of Lewis's friends, I would have given up on him. But they didn't. They kept at it patiently, answering every question that he had. And people will ask all kinds of questions. You think, why are they asking that? 
And they may come back to the same question over and over again. And your job is to be patient with them. Why? Because God has been patient with you. We are to do it intelligently. We are to do it intelligently. We are to teach. I would go so far as to say that what the church needs more than anything else is teaching. People are oftentimes preached at. Um, C.H. Dodd made a distinction between, he was a famous Cambridge scholar, between what he called kerygma, proclamation, and didache, which he called instruction teaching. I think there are many people out there in the church, particularly in the evangelical church here in our diocese, that have been preached to, and they understand the gospel. But they don't know what to do with it. They're not equipped to go out and handle that word in such a way that they bring others into relationship with Jesus Christ. Somebody asked me recently, they said, when are we going to have a vision for St. Philip's? And I said, when God makes it clear that we're ready to step into it. In other words, unless the majority of our people are equipped and capable of going out and sharing their faith with another person, God's not going to give us a vision for the world. He's going to give us a vision when we are capable of stepping into it. So my primary responsibility more than anything else is to teach you. That's one of the reasons why, even though I don't preach every Sunday, I teach two and three times a week to equip you, to get you ready, because I believe God has a plan for us. I don't know what it is, but I think it's a world-changing, city-changing plan. My job is to train you up and get you ready. And then open the cage and let you out. C.H. <laughs> Studd was, uh, C.T. Studd was a great cricketer, famous Christian athlete back in the 20s and 30s, same time period as um, Eric Little from Chariots of Fire fame. And um, he had a very promising career. He was a brilliant man, Cambridge scholar, uh, world-class cricketer, and he gave it all up to become a missionary. And um, he, was a, he was the muscular Christian. He reminds me of a, an evangelical version of my parish priest growing up, a man's man. And this is what he said, and this is my charge to you on this second Sunday of Advent. Stand up. <laughs> In the words of C.T. Studd, I give you this charge. Let us not glide through this world and then slip quietly into heaven without having blown the trumpet loud and long for our Redeemer, Jesus Christ. Let us see to it that the devil will hold a thanksgiving service in hell when he gets the news of our departure from the field of battle. Preach the word in season and out. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks and praise for the Apostle Paul. And over the course of his ministry, he blew the trumpet loud and long for his Savior, Jesus Christ. 
We thank you that he laid that charge upon Timothy as well, and that Timothy was faithful. We are the Timothys today. Grant us the grace and the courage to likewise preach the word in season, out of season, to reprove, to rebuke, to equip, to train people in righteousness, that the men and women of God may be complete for every good work. We ask this in Jesus' name and for Jesus' sake. Amen.